Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you, including our visitors. Okay. Well, for those of you who haven't been with us um, over the last few weeks, hi, Keith. Um, We've been doing a series looking at what does it actually mean to be a Christian community and what did it look like in the first century? How can we think about that? How can we uh, separate out the central convictions of what it means to be a Christian community versus EMEA conventions? The things we've grown up with, perhaps some of the theologies that we've um, inherited and what are the different ways that we can actually see the things that matter and the things that don't matter so much. Very easy for us when we're thinking about church and the way that we habitually come together to think about the way the things that we prefer are the things that matter to God. And that's not necessarily the case. There is actually a lot of freedom in being a Christian community. And as we've seen over church history, quite a lot of diversity. But we shouldn't be complacent just to say, well, whatever goes in that case. There are things that we can actually think about and look at in terms of scripture that might actually reshape, reform uh, the way that we do things. That, in part, is what the Reformation was about. Think, going back to Scripture, going back to the sources and saying, can we change things? Can we be more faithful to God's intentions for his people? Very quick summation for those who um, have not been here over the last couple of weeks. Looking at the Gospels and thinking about the idea of being at the table with Jesus. And so, we talked about the kingdom of God and table fellowship and that a feature of Jesus' ministry throughout. There was healings, there was proclamation, um, the miracles of different kinds, but a big feature of what Jesus did was actually gather people together around a table or to go to other people's tables and uh, cause a fair amount of trouble as to who was actually included and who was not. But as uh, we saw in Jesus' uh, ministry and as we see in the early church, there's a lot of gathering and there's a lot of eating. And this is a good thing. The kingdom of God has arrived. God's presence has come to the world in a new way. God is intervening in a new way in the coming of Jesus and the sending of his spirit. And at the centre of that is a, t- a table. The other part that we looked at too was that thinking about how Jesus proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord in Luke chapter 4 and that the messianic age had arrived. That is, the Messiah, the son of David, who was the son of God, has introduced that uh, future dimension uh, of life. The future age was coming into the world and Jesus was actually restructuring everything. And one of the big questions was, was Jesus going to basically be, I guess, like a communist? Or was he going to be like a Jesus, the um, economic liberator and institute the Jubilee? Everything being returned to its original owners and so forth. And what we said was that actually it's probably it's more like something that we saw among the Pharisees, is that groups of people that follow Jesus would gather together and restructure their lives in the light of the kingdom of God and the Messianic age. We also talk very briefly, very, very briefly, about Jesus feeding the multitudes as a sign of him being the Messiah. And then the other thing that we talked about here was the idea of symposiums and banquets. In the first century, 
Greek culture had also uh, influenced Jewish culture, even the most orthodox of Jews, uh, in which case a lot of stuff you see in uh, Luke's Gospel, for instance, about those who sit at the table and those who are moved up higher and those who are sent down lower, etc., is all in that context of a kind of symposium or banquet where someone would come to speak. So Jesus gets invited, you might remember, to a Pharisee's house to, to come and, and speak. And uh, that's all part of this, uh, this cultural idea, symposium and banquets. And then we talked about the Last Supper, which we will come back to in a moment. Um, John, table fellowship and foot washing. And then we talked about how when Jesus uh, rises from the dead, the very thing that um, he does, uh, in two instances at least, is eats with his people, confirming them as part of God's new community. And then also, uh, you might remember the two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus, disappointed about what seemed was going to happen, that the Messiah we think has come. This man, Jesus, is the guy, uh, but he was killed. We thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Tell the, tell the story, and he starts saying, yeah, well, didn't you see all this in the Old Testament? It's actually prophesied. It's actually, you can see my story in there. And um, as they stop and they um, go to eat together, he breaks bread with them and at that moment disappears so where do we go from here well we then looked at Acts chapter 2 which is like a kind of description of what um, the early church in Jerusalem looked like has a kind of normative dimension to it and at the center of that was the idea of what following the apostles teaching and breaking bread which is mentioned twice there the idea of breaking bread sharing a meal together in the context of this new community. Not just as a kind of, uh, you know, there's an ordinariness to it, but the re repetition of breaking bread through Luke's Gospel and Acts reminds us of Jesus breaking bread at the Last Supper and as part of his hosting of a meal, that the host of the meal breaks the bread and passes it around. But with Jesus, as we saw, it is given a whole uh, additional meaning Okay, so to pull together what we talked about last time. And just, just to remind you, and, and a kind of apology for our, for our visitors, what we've been doing is, uh, you know, in the series is not so much a kind of a, yeah, yeah, a bit of preaching, cheer you up, send you on your way. We actually be doing some real teaching, so that setting a framework for what uh, we'll be doing um, in the future or talking about doing uh, in the future. Okay, so the first thing is that the Lord's table follows in the Jewish tradition of common meals celebrating the acts of Yahweh, celebrating the acts of God. When we gather together at this common meal, which we call communion, Eucharist, Lord's table, Lord's supper, a whole lot of different names, we are celebrating the acts of God in Jesus Christ. The importance of these meals is to make, oh sorry, is these lies in their centering and recital of Yahweh's acts, making their significance contemporary to participants. What? When we get together, uh, we talk about the Lord's death, we talk about him, uh, when he is going to come, we are reciting, we are telling, retelling, reminding each other 
of what Jesus has done, what God has done through Jesus, and we are bringing it into the present. Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago, and yet here we are talking in a sense of its immediacy to us. And every time we have communion, every time we have share the Lord's meal, we in a sense are in our minds and together, remembering together that we are connected to these events and we look forward to the Lord's coming. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, here's where we start to see a bit of a split between how we often think about communion or the Lord's Supper and what the early church participated in. So fancy language, but these meals socially enact. They don't merely symbolise obedience to God, to Yahweh, by providing an occasion for a right response to Yahweh's acts. Hospitality, solidarity, reaffirmation of Israel's identity, especially the Passover meal. So we can see, I guess, a little bit of a glimpse of how that will transfer on for us. When we think about the Last Supper, though, there is both a continuity and a radical reinterpretation in Jesus' table practice. There he is, as we said last week, at the Last, uh, last Supper, very close to Passover, maybe day before, um, with his disciples as part of the inauguration demonstration of the Messianic meal. Remember Isaiah chapter 25, a meal... Uh, a gathering together, a great banquet to celebrate the Messianic age. And since this is what Jesus is actually doing and symbolising here um, with his disciples, a meal which signifies a new covenant, not just a repetition of what Israel had experienced in the past, but something new, the promised new covenant and all that that entailed. Okay. So, so bear with the uh, academic-sounding stuff uh, for the moment. The next thing, that the table of the common meal, with its traditional practice of breaking bread, is transignified, its meaning is changed by Jesus' words of institution, this is my body, which is broken for you. It's not just breaking bread and sharing, it actually takes on a new meaning. It doesn't lose its old meaning, and become something new and ritualistic and, and merely symbolic, but the significance has changed for us. It was seen as the centre of the Messianic community, Acts chapter 2, the breaking of bread and gathering, hospitality, welcome, and the beginning of those holistic benefits, which is the meaning of shalom, harmony, peace and wholeness, of the Messianic age were to be enjoyed and encouraged including, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, its economic implications. And then lastly, after Acts, when we're going to Paul now, this early practice and understanding was perpetuated in the Pauline communities, Paul's churches, though, as we will see, the quality of the performance of that meal and that gathering certainly uh, varied. Okay, so if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11.
So even though the Gospels are, the timing of the Gospels uh, is before Paul, Paul is our earliest writer in the New Testament. And so Paul's letters are, yeah, the earliest kind of evidence of what um, the early church looked like. But he claims in this letter, when he talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you might remember he refers to a common tradition. And the common tradition sounds very much like the Gospel of Luke. So up there you can see that's um, 1 Corinthians there and then the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> and what you see in that is almost word for word between what the tradition, the oral tradition that's passed on to Paul and then what is later on written uh, in Luke. So in both of those cases you have the memorial uh, of... Uh, the breaking of bread, and you also have the cup. You might also notice that there's a bit of a difference when we come to thinking about the cup, because in Luke you also have a mention about taking the cup and distributing it among everyone that's there, and then after everyone has their cup, uh, they're all to um, take the cup, the new cup is blood poured out for you. Paul adds again this notion that whenever you do it, you're doing it in remembrance. So he actually adds, again, reaffirms the fact that when we gather together, we remember. But this is not just a kind of, a, I guess, a general uh, exhortation, although we could learn that from it. What we find when we look at the um, Lord's Supper in uh, 1 Corinthians is, I guess, a very problematic um, uh, event. And so the, the text starts off there, as you can see, that, um, you know, I'm hearing that basically there are divisions among you. I see that when you gather together, it is not necessarily for good, lovely, sarcastic understatement. I don't think we would like to receive a, um, a message like that. When you get together, it's actually not for, not for the common good. It's actually pulling each other down. It's actually dividing. It's actually... A problem and what we see here is that this is manifest in a various ways we talked about the disorder that was happening in Corinth before in 1st Corinthians uh, 12 to 14 but here we see what we call I guess an, an abuse at the Lord's table but as you would probably have noticed in reading out it is not something that looks precisely like what we sometimes do when we talk about communion in the Lord's table Lord's Supper etc and so it's a useful thing for us to go back here to look at what happened, even though it was performed poorly, and to actually ask ourselves, what does it mean to meet at the Lord's table, particularly in light of everything we've seen in the Gospels as well. It's highly unlikely, to say the least, and I'm really under, uh, understating this, uh, that Jesus and Paul and others imagine that what we do with a tiny little morsel of bread and a little tiny glass, a little slip and whatnot, maybe uh, passed on by a special uh, designated person to each individual, is what the Lord's Supper was ever meant to be. We'll talk a little bit about that, but let's start again with um, what's actually happening here. So in 1 Corinthians 11, as I said, uh, there's a problem. He says that when you come to come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Okay? This is a 
food and drink meal of the community gathering together. And whatever it is that they're doing, it is not eating the Lord's Supper. For, in verse 21, when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own uh, supper. And one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What, did you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. So the setting, which is obvious when we read it, is that this is a common meal. This is precisely the kind of thing that we saw in Jesus' uh, ministry. This is precisely uh, what we see in the beginning of the early church. It's precisely what we saw in the book of Acts, uh, even in Acts chapter 20, the, uh, the house gathering um, packed to the rafters and even with people sitting dangerously on the edges of windows. What is happening here? The breaking of bread is a common meal. They are not criticised for not separating their meal from the Lord's Supper. They are not criticised for not treating the elements properly. The criticism, the thing that makes this not the Lord's table, not the Lord's Supper, not the Eucharist or whatever else, is a failure to rightly discern, as it says, the Lord's body. Not the bread, but rather, what? Let's go on and see. What is the Lord's body in this context? I receive from the Lord what I handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night where he was betrayed took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, as you said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, remember me. Remembrance of Jesus, his sacrifice, his love for others is at the centre of this. His achievement, his death on our behalf to form this new community is at the centre of this remembrance. And we proclaim the Lord's death, its character and its accomplishment until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable to the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. And for this many reason, many of you have actually weak and died. If we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. To examine ourselves rather than face this uh, other judgment. Now, he doesn't say, for instance... If you fail to uh, discern the Lord's body and blood, um, then you'll drink judgment to yourself. He's not talking about the elements, the play on words, of course, as has happened all the way through 1 Corinthians. What is the body of Christ? It's us, it's the Christian community. Let's see whether or not that's the theme that comes out. Remember all the way through, he's even said that you together are one body and you are one loaf, one bread um, earlier on. So think about that metaphor as we go through the next part. So, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. 
and I'll give you other instructions later. Point is, it's not to say, well, their problem was they had a meal. It was a meal. The Lord's table was a meal with a symbolic element at its centre. The correction is not to get rid of the meal. The correction is to do it well and treat each other well. And you might be thinking, well, what was actually going on here? Um, why is it that people would so obviously and seemingly greedingly not wait for others? Well, it wasn't just a matter of some people showing up early and then, um, you know, not, not waiting, just impatient. This is actually an element where, again, it's a social stratification. It's the rich and the poor. It's the owners, the patrons, and it's the, um, the slaves. I'll give you a bit of a sense of what the first century uh, setting like this looks like. So here's a quote from the time. Talking about a, um, a host. The best dishes were set in front of himself and a select few and cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. He had even put the wine in tiny little flasks divided into three categories, not with the idea of giving his guests the opportunity of choosing, but to make it impossible for them to refuse what they were given. And one lot was for himself and for us, another for his lesser friends, all of his friends are graded, and the third for his and our freedmen. And that's a kind of typical first century uh, Greco-Roman uh, approach to um, table fellowship. Now you remember this is not in a, big, in a sort of a big building like this. This is actually in a first century household. So you've got the inner kind of sanctum where people are going to gather together and you can fit about a dozen people into that. And so what happens is that in the Corinthian setting you have the wealthiest, most noble, most honourable, highly respected people around town get to come and sit in the middle and then all the rest of this Christian community from all sorts of other, um, I guess, social standing, mostly slaves, they get to sit out in the atrium. So the poor slave comes along after a hard day's work and sits on the edge of the central table where all the good stuff uh, is happening, where all the best food is provided, and then they get the, the scraps on the outside. To even treat your brothers and sisters in Christ in such a way is to, in fact, deny the Lord's table. The meal is no longer the Lord's table. It's not about having certain elements uh, in there that actually makes it the Lord's table. It's part of it, but it's also the manner in which we treat one another at that table. So in this setting, it wasn't until about the second century that the two things got broken apart. You had what was before called the love feast. And the love feast was another way of talking about the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. But in the second century, that began to split apart. And by the third century, where Christians had started to meet in favourable circumstances in the Roman Empire, in their own special buildings, an emergence of kind of priestly ideas um, modelled uh, upon aspects of the Roman Empire, Roman culture, you start to see that distinction happen between a kind of a symbolic ritual and um, the ordinary eating together of food. 
Now, before we go too far down that, you might think if the Lord's Supper is this little ritual with small elements, that if it wasn't for the problem in Corinth, we'd never even know that the early church even partook in the Lord's Supper. I mean, where else do we have this, this same thing happening? And a lot of people used to say things like, well, I think in a lot of the um, Paul's churches, they didn't even know about it. But that's only if you think about it in terms of this kind of ritualistic way. There's a particular kind of ceremony with these elements. It seems hard to believe that if this is actually central to Christian life, that this wouldn't appear in other parts of the New Testament. And I think it does. So have a quick look with me. Romans chapter 15. Always remember to bring your glasses. Because it's Romans 14. Okay. Welcome those who are weak in faith and not for the purpose of quarrelling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not, must not despise those who abstain. Those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants on another? It's before their own Lord that they stand or fall. They'll be upheld and the Lord is able to make them stand. Um, The whole rest of that chapter, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole thing there, but the whole point of the end of Romans 14 15 is about the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles to be able to eat together and not quibble uh, in this new context of new covenant, of new creation, to quibble over food. Because food is actually, and eating together is fundamental to that Christian community. That's part of what it is. The common meal is there, but there's not a discussion of um, how one would properly treat, say, elements. Then if you jump over to um, Galatians and look at the beginning of Galatians there, chapter 2, the big controversy in Galatians is about how do Gentiles be incorporated into God's people and actually eat together with Jewish people who have uh, a variety of food laws and requirements about how they're supposed to eat. And to not eat according to the law for some Jews would be Ah, that's anathema, that is contrary to uh, God's uh, commandments to us. And Gentiles need to take on both circumcision and these food laws to actually be properly integrated into the people of God. Paul's argument against Peter when he withdraws under pressure from certain other Jewish folk not to eat with the Gentiles is actually say this is like a denial of the gospel. And it's centred around this whole thing of table fellowship. So table fellowship is there in the New Testament and if you understand the Lord's meal, the Lord's table, as actually being this meeting and eating together as the community of God, well, it's certainly, certainly there. But back to 1 Corinthians 11. What I want to say is that oftentimes we end up with a practice and then we try to, I guess, theologise or punch it full of uh, interesting ideas 
and try to give it more significance than what it actually has. So, for instance, in a Baptist church now, like I said, the little cup, a little tiny piece of bread, and what are we actually doing? And what do we think we're doing? And we have this whole discourse that comes out about, well, when you're going to take the elements, make sure that you are taking them worthily. And it's a little individual thing for each of us to actually do to come and consume. So we'll all line up. And some churches very explicit. We do it a little bit. All line up and very somberly ask the question, mm, am I eating this worthily? But as you see here, the context of being of this worthiness it's not to do with the one who's saved, of course. It's actually to live uh, in line with the character of Christ and it's to treat brothers and sisters well, tangibly, materially, in love and to share what we have with one another. The meal, in a sense, is kind of like a, a paradigmatic practice. It's a practice that kind of focuses that idea where we come together, we share food. We're not symbolising sharing, we are sharing. But in actually continually doing that practice, we are learning about how we share materially with one another and expanding and, th and thinking and with God's leading, asking how each of us can actually share with one another. If we do not discern the Lord's body properly, the community, and instead act in divisive ways, including in our material um, wealth, then we're not discerning the Lord's uh, body properly. Now, Paul doesn't say here, well, the answer to all of this is to sell everything off and we're going to divvy it up equally. So anyone that was uh, afraid that, that we were like, you know, three steps from communism or something, you can all relax now. But what we can't draw back from is the fact that actually the way we treat one another in our gatherings together and our life together more broadly should reflect that generosity and sharing. Now, when people look back in the, through church history on the Lord's um, table and look back to what it originally was, one of the most famous preachers in church history, John Chrysostom, made this comment. Table fellowship, custom most excellent, most useful. It was a foundation of love, a comfort to poverty, a corrective of riches and an occasion of the highest philosophy and an instruction of humility. Now, the philosophy thing there is not um, like, uh, you know, English analytic philosophy or something. It's about talking about um, a way of life, thinking and explaining a way of life, which uh, Christianity provides also. So a slightly different way that we would maybe use the term philosophy. But you can see in that, actually, there's all the elements we've talked about from the New Testament last week. So you might say that actually... Um, Instruction of humility, thinking about uh, the foot washing that happens in John's account of the Lord's Supper. Occasional highest philosophy you might think in terms of explaining and exegeting and expositing the apostles' teaching. A foundation of love, comfort to poverty and a corrective of riches. All rooted in this idea of table fellowship. Okay, so if it doesn't seem obvious maybe to us, it was obvious in the first century. It was even obvious in um, the early medieval period as well, among some.
how did we get to where we are? I'm not going to give you a long story about, about that. But I want you to think about what we've talked about and what we do, think about three different things. The first one is the idea of development. Okay. And in the New Testament, we see how you have the Passover, you have the Lord's uh, Supper, the original, well, sorry, the Last Supper, the original Last Supper, and then you have what's become the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table as well. There is a development where additional meetings are, are brought in. This is a good thing. It's not just that we continually repeat. We're not repeating the Last Supper when we do the Lord's Supper. Additional meeting has been added to this uh, common meal. So there's an extension of meaning. Um, I forgot to actually put down that last point. And, leave it hanging. What was I going to say? And. Well, I'll have to think about that. Maybe it'll come back to me. Okay, the next thing, though, is derivation. And this is kind of where we are with what we have now. And that is an occasional partial symbolic enactment of that. So if you can imagine in, the ch in church history, Christians, what do we do? We gather together, we eat, we break bread, we remember the Lord's death, we proclaim it until he comes. We share together. It's a place in which we actually also take care of one another and opens up to providing for those who are poor. Now, if you're in persecution and you're all a bunch of Christians hiding in a basement somewhere, um, or say in the former, uh, you know, a former communist state, you have to be very quiet. We're going to meet in this basement and in quietness, pray, and someone has some bread and someone has some wine, and they break the bread and they pass it around. It's not that, oh, that's the fullness of the Lord's Supper. We've, you know, we've, we've sort of knocked it down to its base meaning and the rest is superfluous. It's like a derivation. It's like taking something at the centre of it and reminding ourselves of the, of the, uh, the meaning in terms of how Christ has brought this uh, community together. But it's not just say, well, we don't need to worry about the rest now. So that's the idea of derivation. But then we have deviance. I was going to say deviation, but deviation can also be a good thing. But deviance where um, a, wrong, a wrong turn is taken, okay? And we, we head off in a different, different direction and other meanings start to be attached to the Lord's table, okay? Like I say, the whole idea of, as Baptists, I can say this uh, in this place, and apologies to non-Baptist visitors, but the notions of priesthoods, special mediators between us and God, um, offering in any form uh, the Eucharist as a kind of pseudo-sacrifice or needing to be given by a specific person. All of these things are, I think, deviations in a bad way and they're a form of deviance. And once you separate out this practice of just receiving two elements from a priest or representative figure, you start to ask completely different questions. You start to ask questions like in the early medieval period. So when Jesus says, this is my body, what does that look like? What, what does that mean? Is he actually in here in the bread? And how is that possible? How is, his, how is this actually uh, his blood here that I'm drinking? How is this his body? And a whole 
discourse starts about how we're going to explain how that kind of happens. And all through church history, you end up with people who are sort of saying, no, it's a symbolic thing. It's not that. Others saying, ah, Jesus means what he says and he said it's my body and that is that. And come the Reformation, what you end up with is actually not kind of a, let's, you know, clean sweep, let's go back to the text and look at the questions that the text raises for us. Instead, we have what I would call the mass without the magic. What you end up with instead is that let's give a different account of how Jesus is present uh, in the body, in the bread, that is. We don't need to be bound by those questions. We are able to go back to the text of Scripture and to ask ourselves, what's going on there? And then by analogy, how might we enact something similar in our own time? It's not a slave, you know, it's not being a slave to the Bible. It's not like saying, well, in the early church, they met around tables and in houses. So we're all packing up today and we're all going to houses. We're all packing up today and we're all just going to be, every week it'll be a table. We're not following the Bible like a rule book. What we want to understand is why. Why did they do this? And then what might that mean for us today? I'm going to just quickly run through very fast some of the implications of what we've looked at over the last three weeks. So first of all, the Lord's table is the sacred common meal of the Christian community. That's fundamentally what it is. It is a participation in Christ. We gather together in Christ as one body and actually uh, participate in his life together. And we do so in a concrete way through, um, through the Lord's table. We comprehend his, his life of service, his death, his resurrection and the future perusing, his future coming, his future presence by which the followers of Jesus identify with their Lord and this is especially brought to light in the context by those poetic symbol actions, symbolic actions of breaking bread. We gather at a meal, the beginning of the meal or at some point in the meal, it's not just pizza and coke, like some people go, oh, it's a meal, so when you have pizza and coke, that's communion. No, there's a definite symbolic action that happens in this meal that sacralises that meal, that's at the centre. Okay? The common meal is a gospel embodiment because to gather at the Lord's table does not merely point to the work of God in Christ, but embodies the results of that work. We're not just referring back to my own personal experience of salvation, the table is the gospel bringing us together. It's actually living it out. Working out of salvation in God's household, including the very material benefits of the Messianic age among us. As I said, the material benefit and um, aspect of this is unavoidable. Acts chapter 2, the, sh the breaking bread and sharing of possessions. In um, 1 Corinthians 11, the sharing of food equally... Um, without regard to social status. Okay, the common meal is spirit-led community formation. Remember we talked about 1 Corinthians 11? Um, that was connected to 12 to 14. The gift of the spirit poured out in the community is a place in which there is an open meeting, an open sharing. Someone has a song, or someone has a word, someone has encouragement, someone has a teaching, someone has a tongue, someone has an interpretation of a tongue. That's, that's it. 
Um, it's a place to provide an occasion for all the Spirit's gifts in the community to be expressed as he will. So Romans 12, works of mercy, encouragement, hospitality, and I've added in teaching there because I have a bias towards that. But no, church gathers together um, to continue in the apostles' teaching. Okay, sacred cold meal, we talk about the Eucharist. That means a thanksgiving. So together at the table hosted by the Lord is an occasion of thanksgiving to God and appreciation for the work of Christ. And then it is what you know we sometimes call a sacrament, which comes from the word sacramentum, which originally, and the Reformation debated this a bit, gather at the Lord's table to enact a pledge to God who has made a pledge to us covenantally, to serve him faithfully by his grace and love one another, as Jesus commanded. All of these things kind of find their focus in the fact of gathering today, uh, gathering together at a table in Christ in order to live out, enact, experience, participate in the life of Christ as this community. Almost there. At the centre of Christian community's life, the Lord's table, as a sacred common meal, should be practised as often as possible. So, you know, the old um, see you every month, maybe every couple of months or something like that, like a residual on-the-edge practice, we need to think about what does the actual practice mean and therefore why wouldn't we try to do it as often as possible. I'm sorry to the Anglicans. Um, talking about using the Lord's uh, Supper or using the Eucharist. In the context of thinking about the community meal, that doesn't even make sense anymore, does it? The practice itself begins to may help you think differently about what's being done. Okay, now I've already so said the um, idea of breaking bread, transignifying, changing the meaning, changing the significance. It also means that it changes our everyday meals as well. And as you see, throughout the New Testament too, about receiving things with thanksgiving. That's Eucharist. Receive the thanksgiving. All those other meals when Christians get together, we start to, our other meals start to become more sacred in that, re that regard. They tend to be more focused on Christ. Community presides at the meal. There's no special clerical figures in the New Testament. Um, under Christ's authority, Christ is our host and can des designate whoever it sees fit to pray or perform symbolic acts in the world. So that's my opinion there, I'll just say. It's a theological opinion, but that's an opinion. And then just also as well, this is a hard one for Baptists, um, at the common meal of the community, there's no reason why children could not participate at the table and learn the public truth of Christ's lordship expressed there, regardless of their supposed place in you know, where they are on the stage of salvation, as they say as welcome observers, even potential participants in the making of disciples. And then lastly, and this is for us particularly, derived symbolic practices, bread and wine, are valid to the extent they're understood to be such and they do not supplant the regular, regular fullness of practice that we are, I believe, called to express. Okay. The little morsel or the youth, the youth leader that comes up for a communion talk with a nail and says, look how... Uh, that is, and we're all supposed to feel very sad and whatever and come very solemnly to the table. And It's not what the New Testament practice was about. There is a seriousness and a reverence that's involved in breaking bread and recognising. It's also celebrating, celebrating as well. It's not 
a um, small religious uh, ritual. Okay, to finish this part, because we do have the table there at the back, S. Scott Barty, who was someone I quoted on going, what? He's just moving on from Chrysostom's uh, quote. What is it then that prevents Christians now from practising again such an excellent and useful custom that Chrysostom described? Are the hindrances of whatever sort really of greater importance than the need in our time to demonstrate table fellowship with Jesus? There's so much more that could be said, um, but I really want you to kind of think about that question. It's all too easy to think about, oh, yes, we see this in the Bible, and oh, yes, we see the sort of richness and so forth there, but, yeah, that sounds too hard. Uh, what would happen, you know, what happens with the music? What happens with tables? What happens with setting things up? And what happens with... If you really believe the goodness of what um, we talked about over the last few weeks about what it means to eat at the Lord's table together and to share with one another in that respect and to open up these questions of what it actually looks like to actually hear from one another and not just sit it as an audience, if you think that is a good thing, if you think, yes, the New Testament was really on to something there, I think we have to say the convenience question is pretty low in the um, order of things, is it not? Our preferences are pretty low in the order of things too. There's flexibility and so forth. There is uh, ability to have variety in all of these different things. We are not slaves to these things. But what I hope that we've done over the last few weeks is to kind of break and shatter a kind of imagination that what we do as a church in this part of the Western world of this particular century at this time is how it has to be. And that God is really invested in that. God is not highly invested in our particular liturgical form. He's not invested in our particular way of holding a meeting. What God is invested in is living out the life of Christ together. And we have some very simple ideas and practices that are shown to us in the New Testament that are right there for us as a smaller congregation in particular, as a small community, to actually participate in and ask ourselves what? God might do in that way. I'm finishing there, but I did promise two weeks ago that at the end of um, any long talking that we would open up for other people to say things that they would say or to ask questions. And Matt, you are my hearing aid today, so can I just get you up here to repeat anything that I don't hear if someone wants to ask something as well? It's one of the gifts. Romans <laughs> chapter 18. Right. So if anyone has any questions about what we've talked about, next week we're going to be talking about the implications of what that looks like for community and mission in our setting. But if you have any questions about what we've talked about over the last few weeks, then feel free to do so. Or a comment. Or a good faith disagreement.
I, like I said, yeah, I heard that one. Yeah, we can't go there because it might probably be someone else. <laughs> I hope there is. Ab absolutely. And like Baptists do struggle with that uh, a bit as well. But if the gospel is about the public truth that Jesus is Lord, there's no reason that others couldn't come and share and learn and be led on that path together rather than say... Um, some kind of magic or other serious business is happening here in the elements yeah anyone can break bread and pass the bread and we all as christian parents are seeking to disciple our children in gentleness non-coercively into being welcomed into the kingdom of god so yeah absolutely emily The Passover. I think it's something that's worth talking about together. Um, I think it makes sense to, as often as possible, to eat together and share together. Um, and then sometimes it might be, look, we actually do want to just stop unless we haven't got time to have a meal or for whatever reason to say okay maybe we'll do this derived kind of practice from it but always remember this is something we've taken out of the lord's table and we need to get back to the fullness of practice back here rather than um say ah we don't need that anymore don't need to share anymore love each other anymore uh, in that way we can just do our own sort of thing so i think um flexibility and freedom i would prefer more often than not that we actually do it eating together. What do you think? Yeah, that's right. And, and, and part, of, part of, I guess, part of the thing there was to see the continuity of it. Rather, rather than, like for Christians, we get together in a world which is maybe sometimes... Uh, is interested in us, but most of the time is doesn't care, or sometimes is hostile. There's a seriousness of actually getting together as a Christian community. It's not just like ah, stick around for lunch, chat about the footy, uh, or whatever, um, movies and telly and whatever. These are all good things that one can do around the table, but there's an element where at the centre of why we gather, it's Jesus Christ, is it not? And there is an ordinariness of conversation. But it's a good thing actually for us to gather, eat at the table with our minds first and foremost shaped by thinking about Christ, move into other things by all means. Domo.
But actually, you know what? I'm going to bring a I'm going to bring a biscuit with me because actually I want to break bread with this person and I want to share some of the wealth that I have, even if it is only a biscuit or even if it is a half a muesli bar. Hey, do you want a half a muesli bar as we talk and as we eat? Um, it, it's been really uh, edifying for me to offer my my half a muesli bar. So I don't know if that's helpful. Or not. Well, next week we'll talk about how table fellowship might relate to mission. And we may or may not agree on everything with that because what we're talking about is not just, hey, it's good to eat meals, let's just eat with everyone. It's actually saying that it is an important thing to actually be here together, um, together and with our God, but same as talking about, there's an element of hospitality and welcoming and invitation that is included in that and that no one is excluded so, but we'll talk about that uh, more next week. Was that the, the Acts chapter 2 one, was it? question. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick summary because it's also important for, the, for this, what we're talking about as well, is that um, any of this uh, is something that we say, this all happens in history, it all happens in the midst of cultures and it's meaningful in relation to those cultures. If we just sort of take everything that we read in the scriptures kind of being, this is a thing for all time and all ways, whatever, um, that would actually miss basic logic of the New Testament, which is to keep going, keep spreading. Here's the news, not an idea or a, um, a, you know, a kind of abstract set of beliefs, but here's a way of life rooted in what God has done for us and taken to new settings and watch what happens. Um, like in the first century, you know, predominantly um, Greco-Roman culture, there's elements of what happens in, in that culture where they take ideas from say, Greek philosophy, and reshape it around Christian belief. It has a relationship to the context it's in, um, but it's been changed by that encounter. With something like the head coverings thing as well, what does that mean in first, you know, first century Greco-Roman culture? Um, to not wear a head covering in that setting, um, what does that, you know, is there a kind of tangled... Uh, cultural meaning that's associated with it. Is it essential to the news that Jesus Christ has come to the Lord and, you know, live faithfully to God, has died upon a cross for the forgiveness of sins and risen from the dead, a new creation coming in? 
that's part of the struggle that's in the New Testament, and even thinking about previous Jewish practice. Do we keep on... Do we not eat shellfish? Oh, we're allowed to eat that now. Even Jews? Hang on, what's going on here? In Galatians, we find that kind of discussion. In Christ, all that matters is faith working through love. And in Christ, all that matters is a new creation, something new. Um, it, Jesus didn't come in the world to produce a new religion. Like, here's all fake religions, and now I've come to give the true one. He's done so much more than that. Re- religion is our provisional kind of response in some ways to the things that God has done. So there is a religious element, but all those things can be changed and challenged and critiqued in the light of the fundamental reality. So um, Paul has a reason to say what he says, which is very complicated. So I can't, I, it really is like a in-depth thing. But he's talking about something in an honour-shame culture um, where there's an element of regard for the other that's important in, in that setting. So there's an element where Paul doesn't want to say, hey, you're offering Christ, just go and do anything and create scandal and disorder and misunderstanding. On the other hand, it is an opening of door for freedom and particularly for women in the first century, you can see that door beginning to open up wider and wider um, in a way which is, you know, unexpected, you might say. Um, you know hitting the heart of reality of what God wants to do in the world. I feel myself kind of drifting off from your answer. No worries. Well, look, we're going to gather around the table shortly. Let's pray, have a break, catch up with one another, and then please let's come together, let's break bread, eat together, talk and share in God's life. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being with us, for your presence amongst us, that your spirit is here in the midst of the body of Christ. And even our small part of the world, we just thank you for the privilege of participating in that. Lord, help us to think through things, not just to take even what's um, been said this morning and uh, without uh, critical thinking, but to think it through, discuss with one another. Help us to do that well in the power and gifting of your spirit, we ask. Help us to be humble and open and willing to enter new ways of fellowship, partnership and mission together. Thank you for this part of our service and um, yeah, look forward to gathering together, Father, to eat in fellowship with you at your table that you have hosted for us in Christ. In Jesus' name.